You may be seated. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verses 32 and following. And then we'll also kind of be moving into Acts chapter 5 as well. Now, as you're turning there, as I introduce myself, I am Josh Laxton. I work full-time at the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. Uh, But not too long ago, we kind of defined the relationship between Wheaton Bible Church and myself. And now I am the part-time, part-time young adult pastor as well as a teaching pastor here. And I couldn't be more grateful and honored uh, to join the staff and to join the family here at Wheaton Bible. My family and I, we have been attending Wheaton Bible since last summer. And I want you to know that we dearly and deeply love Wheaton Bible Church. And so just know that you might be seeing a little bit more of me. Well, so... 2020 has probably been a wake-up call for many of us. Now, you're probably thinking, well, yeah, COVID. COVID's the the wake-up call. Yeah, I mean, COVID is definitely the wake-up call. I mean, just this past week, we surpassed over 200,000 people passing from this life into eternity. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of people. Now, I know some people out there would say, well, but, but, but some of those had preconditions. It doesn't matter if they had preconditions. Just think about it. 200,000 people died. They, they passed from this life into eternity. But when you think about 2020 so far, we, we also have the politicalization of the pandemic driving more division between Americans. You have the rise of drug abuse, mental illness, suicide. You have social media skirmishes over lockdowns, over masks, over children not going to school. You have a rise in racial tension. You have rioting and looting and violence in the streets of our American cities. You have a highly toxic presidential race. And then now you even have the political battle over filling Ruth Bader Ginsburg Supreme Court seat. See, whether or not we are a Christian or not this morning, when we look at just what 2020 has dealt us, I would say that we probably would all agree that there is a big, big problem in the world. Like there is a huge problem in the world. Now, as believers, here's what we can, I think, agree on, that we know that there is a problem in the world, but what is the root problem in the world? And we would, as believers, say the root problem in our world is that the world that humanity has a sinful, has a bad, has a damaged and diseased heart. See, that's the reason why it, it, it doesn't matter who we elect as president. It doesn't really matter, you know, who we elect in the Senate or Congress. It really doesn't matter who we put on the bench of the Supreme Court of the United States because we all have a bad and wicked and damaged and diseased heart. So what I'm trying to say here this morning early on is that we as human beings, we cannot solve the heart issue. But there is one that has come to solve the heart issue. And his name is Jesus. 
over 2,000 years ago. He came to deal with the fundamental root problem of the human heart. And this is the incredible news of the gospel is that while we as sinners have a bad and diseased and sinful heart, Jesus died for us. And if we confess him as Savior and Lord, we believe in him as king, then he gives us his heart. Whoa, that's incredible. See, that's the reason why he can, because he is outside of our problem, right? He was perfect. He died for us to give us his heart. And so when it comes to humanity and when it comes to now the church who has professed their sin and, and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we now have his heart and that's what makes us an invincible church. Now think about that. That's what makes us an invincible church because we have his heart. I mean, that's incredible, is it not? And so if the church is going to be invincible, then we need to make sure that we are centered around the glory of King Jesus. We need to make sure that we are gospel-centered. We need to make sure that we are spirit-empowered. And we need to make sure that we are mission-oriented if we're going to be an invincible church. And so here are the two main points that we are going to look at this morning, and I will put them on the screen for you, is that you need to check your heart so you don't corrupt his house, and then you need to check your heart so you'll consecrate his house. Yeah, there you go. Both of them are up there. I'm seeing like all these different screens out, you, you know, up here. And I'm like, wow, this is a, you know, I feel like I'm uh, in NASA or something. <laughs> but but I, w- I want us to look at, let me go back. Can we go back? Yeah. Oh, let's go back to those two points. All right, there we go. So, so I, want us to, I want us to look at these, these two points this morning. That we need to check our heart so that we don't corrupt his house. And we need to check our heart so we'll consecrate his house. Now, to flesh out these two main points, we're going to be in Acts 4, the latter part, and Acts 5. And and Dr. Luke, who is the author of Acts, uh, we're going to go to him for a heart checkup this morning, if you will. And what Dr. Luke is, is going to tell us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is how we can make sure that our hearts are centered around King Jesus, how our hearts are in tune to the Spirit of God, how our hearts are focused on the mission that God has given us. And as a result, we'll see six heart checks this morning. And so will you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? And we're going, only going to read one verse this morning. And here it is. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Will you pray with me? Jesus, speak to us. Speak. Spirit, soften our hearts. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, so really to get the full context of 
the story, you, you really have to understand that this isn't really far removed from Jesus's death and resurrection. Uh, this isn't far removed to the day of Pentecost where the spirit of God fell and over 3,000 people added to the church. This is not far removed to Peter and, and uh, the other disciples be in front of the ruling class of the Sanhedrin. And, and they, they were prohibited by the Sanhedrin from preaching the name of Jesus. And they're like, well, you, you know, well, that, 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 that's okay that you say that, but whether it's okay to obey God or man, you can be the judge, but we must continue to proclaim the name of Jesus. And then we get to this particular passage. So what I want you to realize is that these are still the early days of the church. The church is still in diapers. And here's what we read in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Now that's the early church. That's the state. That's the condition of the early church, they were all there together in one heart and mind. So what does that mean that they were in one heart? Well, it describes their unity. It describes their fellowship. It describes their oneness. In other words, it, it really describes the fact that believers in the early church, they viewed one another as family. Let me ask you this. Is that the way you view one another? As family, you're like, well, I don't know everybody's name. Well, that's not what I asked. Do you view each other as family? Because I, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm guessing here, but when 3,000 people were added to the church in Jerusalem on Pentecost, I'm sure everyone didn't know everyone's name. But they were one in heart. Now, when it's from their one in heart, it's their oneness and it's their unity that, that leads... Luke, to write this, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. This leads us to heart check number one. Here it is. If you're taking notes online, if you're taking notes, here's heart check number one. And these heart checks will be in the form of a question. So I want you to ask these questions to yourself. So heart check number one, is what's yours his? is what's yours his. I mean, did you notice no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own? Like, so they own possessions, but they're like, they're not mine. Well, so if they're not theirs, whose are they? They're God's. And as a result of them viewing their possessions as God's, they shared with anyone who had need. Now, I want us to realize that our viewership determines our stewardship. Our viewership determines our stewardship because how you view your possessions will determine how you use your possessions. Like, have you ever had anyone over your house and you said the following phrase, make yourself at you know, if Hannibal was up here, he would say, mi casa su casa, because he's been teaching me Spanish. He, and I, you know, I was saying, man, you, you really need to teach me Spanish. He's like, well, you need to learn English first. I'm like, wow, oh, snap. So no, he, he didn't say that. But I have been telling him he needs to teach me Spanish. But, but if, you've, if you've ever had any guest over, you've said, hey, hey, make yourself at home. What, what are you saying? 
Well, if you need something to drink, help yourself. If you need something to eat, there, there's the pantry. If you need to use the restroom, it's right down the hall. If you need to make yourself comfortable, there's my couch. In other words, what is mine is yours. Now, some have wanted to note that this is socialism, this is communism. And the problem with that is that they are interposing their presuppositions and their cultural wishes onto the text. But I want us to realize this morning that it's not socialism, it's not communism, it's not anti-capitalism, it's God's economy. And in God's economy with his people, they realize they're not forced to share, they get to share. There's this blessing that they have in their life that they want to share. This is free mutual sharing. You need a place to live, here's a guest room. You need some food, we have plenty. You need a donkey to plow your field, well here's mine. He's a little stubborn and he's a little slow, but he'll get the job done. You need a camel because yours died, here's mine. It's, it's not fast, but it'll get you where you're going. You need some clothes here. We got plenty of clothes because we got a quiver full of children. You see, that, that's the early church. What's mine is yours. Why? Because what's mine is his. Well, but they actually took this mutual sharing even further. And here's what Luke shares in verse 34. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sale. So here we come to heart check number two. Does your giving cut into your living? Does your giving cut into your living? Because here's the thing, if your giving doesn't cut into your living, you're not giving generously. I want you to think about that. If your giving doesn't cut into your living, you're not giving generously. So here's what we see from the early church is that many who had excess, who had extra they sold those things, property and possessions, and they gave the proceeds or the profit to anyone who had need. Now, I want, me, I want to be clear this morning. Wealth isn't bad. That, that's not what the text is saying. The text isn't saying, hey, wealth is bad. You shouldn't have it. No, it's not saying making money is bad. It's not saying that having extra is bad. It's not saying that having multiple cars is bad. Multiple houses is bad. Multiple properties is bad. That's not what the text is saying. It's how we view, steward, and use those possessions. That's why if we really want to check our heart to make sure that Jesus is the center of our heart, we'll ask these questions, right? Because what, what, what Jesus viewed his possessions as, what he viewed his life as is not his, but God's. That everything that I have is God's. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give generously, even my life. <laughs> I was thinking, you, you know, humanity has a tough enough time sharing. Like you, you don't have to teach your kids not to share, you know, not to share. That, that's just innate. They don't want to share. But I want you to think about even how like kind of more difficult it is to share generously, 
to the fact that it would cut into your living. Like, so we have three kids, a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 9-year-old. My 14-year-old, he loves playing his PlayStation. Now, we, we, we give him a, a kind of a, a, a time allotment each day for how long he could play his PlayStation. Now, more recently, and it's, it is pretty phenomenal, I, we didn't even have to ask him to do it. I, I think maybe over the years he just got tired of hearing us. But, but recently, he's allowed his younger brother, the nine-year-old, to play his PlayStation. Because undoubtedly, he's doing some, some things for him to, to advance him. And, you know, it's just, it, it's kind of menial. But, hey, uh, Luke, he loves it. Well, could you imagine if I told my older son, Caleb, hey, listen, any time that you allow Luke to be on your PlayStation, it cuts into your time allowance. Let me ask you this. Do you think my 14-year-old would then let Luke play his PlayStation? No. See, see. That's why, listen, it, it is only a heart that is centered around Jesus that could give to the point of it would be cutting into our living. So let me ask you this. Are you giving in a way that cuts into your living? See, the believers, they sold their possessions, cutting into their living to give to needs. Now, but... But when they sold their possessions, what did they do with it? Well, it is interesting because verse 35 says this, is that they brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. Huh. This leads us to heart check number three. Is your giving an act of surrender? Is your giving an act of surrender? In other words, is your offering an act of obedience? Now, I want you to notice that when they would bring the money to the apostles' feet, there, there were no stipulations. Like, they, they, they didn't want an award. They didn't want recognition. They didn't want position. They didn't want influence over the church and where the church should go. No, they just gave the profit, the proceeds, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. Basically, what they're saying is that we trust the leadership. Do with the money what you believe God wants you to do with the money. Let me ask you this. How awkward would Christmas be if when we were exchanging gifts every time, like a child or, or someone that we, were, that we love, we were given the present to, what if every present they would open we're like now let me tell you something about this present now i'm not going to let you open this present unless uh, you promise me abc like you gotta you gotta cherish it you gotta play with it for like two hours like what that would that would be a weird and awkward christmas would it not that if every gift that we gave had a stipulation attached to it or we tried to control the person with the gift why is it in the american church we think that just because we give money to the church we should have position in the church we should have influence in the church as if the church is a democracy it's not. And well, I just don't, I, you, know, you know what, pastor, I just, uh, I just don't trust the leadership. Well, that's a whole nother issue in and of itself. See, in the early church, when they gave, it was an act of surrender. It was an act of obedience. It wasn't for control. It wasn't for power. It wasn't for position. It was out of pure obedience and generosity. 
And then at the end of chapter 4, we have an example of someone who who embodies this, and his name is Barnabas. You probably heard of him. Barnabas is the son of encouragement. And we read that, that Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas. So he got, he, he, basically Barnabas was his nickname because he was always encouraging people. What did he do? He sold a field he owned and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. You see, Barnabas, he exemplifies this. He saw his possessions not as his own, but God's. He gave generously, cutting into his excess, cutting into his extra, cutting into his living. And Barnabas gave as an act of surrender. surrender. And as a result, could you imagine, now the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus is working in the life of the early church to the point that the Bible says this, there were no needy persons among them. I mean, could you imagine if that was said of every church in the world? Could you imagine if, if that was said of every church in America, that there were no needy persons among them? See, here's what we learn is that a church with healthy hearts have whole peoples. A church with healthy hearts has whole peoples. There's no needs. Why? Because family meets needs. Now, Luke is going to swiftly move into chapter five about a man named Ananias and his wife and they are going to be contrasted from people like Barnabas that's why in chapter five verse one many translations begins with the word but but that's the turning point in the story and we are introduced to a man named Ananias now, obviously, Ananias and Sapphira, they had a lot of money. They were well off because they also had extra property that they could sell. And so we, we learned that they sell property. Now, what property did they sell? I don't know. Maybe they had a lake house by the Sea of Galilee. Uh, maybe they had an Airbnb in Jerusalem. We don't know what kind of property they had, but they sold their property. Now, here's what Luke tells us. He says, with his wife's full knowledge, this is in verse 2, he kept back part of the money for himself. And he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, that's not what Barnabas did. But here, Ananias, we learned that he kept back. Well, that Greek word, kept back, means that he stole, he misappropriated the funds, or he embezzled. Now, that's interesting. He kept back. It wasn't his money. Undoubtedly, he had arranged with the church leaders to give the full amount from the sale of the property. But here he has now decided to keep back. And as a result, he has stolen, he has misappropriated funds, he has embezzled. Now, why does he keep back some of the money? Now, we don't know. Did, did he get more than he thought he would? Maybe it was a boom in the economy and property values were skyrocketing. Did he need a new camel because his was getting old? I don't know. Did, did he have a senior in high school and they were getting ready to go to the University of Jerusalem and he knew the tuition was going to be high? And so he's like, man, we, if we keep back a point, you know, this would be awesome. We don't know. All we know is that he kept back money. Now, what was the ultimate reason why he did this? Because he was selfish. He loved himself more. And as a result, he was stingy. He was greedy. And this leads to heart check number four. Heart check number four 
Am I pretending to deliver what I promised? Am I pretending to deliver what I promised? You see, the, the, the issue that's really getting Ananias or will get him into trouble is that he delivers the money, he lays it at the apostles' feet as if he was giving the whole amount. So he pretends to deliver on what he promised. I mean, I want you to think about the words embezzle and lie. I mean, these words carry the connotation of concealment. When someone lies, they are pretending to tell the truth. The lie is fake truth. But the person wants to be seen as honest. When someone embezzles, typically no one knows. Like, I've never seen a job description that says, please embezzle money as you see fit. So, I mean, so, so, but when people embezzle, they, they hide it from their employer. They hide it from others, but yet they come to work every day as if they are an outstanding employee. And so Ananias, he's pretending. And, and see, it would just have, it would have been so much easier if Ananias would have came, you know, would have went to Peter and the others and said, you know what, Peter, I, I, I've, I've rethought this whole thing. You know, I got, I got some things that, you know, I need to deal with. He doesn't, though. He doesn't talk. He goes and pretends that he's given the full amount. See, in promising radical generosity, he was actually being greedy. Now, before we throw Ananias under the bus, we all need to see how we are prone to do this. In our own life, we are guilty of doing what Ananias did. How, Josh, how? Well, just one way uh, is that if you promise to do something and you don't do it, but you pretend that you did do it, you are doing exactly what Ananias did. The Bible says that we need to let our yes be yes and our no be no. If we say we're going to do it, do it. Then the second way, and this is really probably the more prevalent way this happens, it really applies to the entire Christian life. You, you, you do realize that when we claimed the blood of Jesus and he exchanged his heart for our heart, meaning that he took upon our sin, he gave us his righteousness and he becomes our savior. He becomes our Lord. He becomes our king. What, what's that exchange? That exchange is, hey, listen, I am not in charge. I'm not the king of my life. You are. Everything that I have, Jesus, I give to you. Everything in my life orbits around you. You have all of me. That was the promise. That was the covenant that you entered into. That was the, that was the official relationship that you entered into that I entered into with King Jesus. We promised to give him our life. But why is it that many believers throughout their lifetime, they start reneging on the promises that they made? And then they still waltz around as if they're the spiritual giant. Uh, like I said, I have three children. The middle one is the princess. She's 12 years old. And she has a problem. She cannot keep her room clean. 
The other day we had a plumber in our house because we had a, a leak and, uh, from upstairs. And so we go upstairs, we basically bust up into a room. And I, 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 you know, for me, I really wasn't embarrassed. I mean, it just is what it is. It's a preteen girl, all right? But you couldn't even see the carpet. I mean, she had clothes, pictures. Uh, she had uh, a Panda Express, like, uh, uh, drink cups. I'm like, who? Like, what? And so, I mean, just all over, the, all over her room. And so obviously after, uh, after the plumber left, I, I, I tell Ellie, I'm like, Ellie, uh, you need to clean your room. All right, sweetheart, you need to clean your room. Well, so that was kind of early in the day. Later on that, 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 that kind of evening, she wanted to go downtown and, and hang out with her friends. And I said, hey, Ellie, did you clean your room? And she's like, yes, dad, I cleaned my room. I'm like, Ellie, did you really clean your room? Yes, dad, I promise I cleaned my room. I'm like, I'm gonna go up there and see. And so I waltz up there and I open up and I'm like, okay, yeah, you can see some carpet, all right? But you still got the Panda Express cup. You still got pictures everywhere. You still got pins everywhere. I mean, like Ellie, like this might, you might've straightened up your room. You haven't cleaned your room. How many Christians today don't deliver on their promise? Maybe they have a straightened room, but they don't have a cleaned room. And when I mean by they've just straightened it up, there, there, there are so many things that I could, I could say about this, but I'll just give some areas right now where in some sense, I would say Christians today haven't really fully given these areas to Jesus. Sexuality, marriage, finances, time, and politics. So let me ask you this question. Are you pretending to deliver on the promises you made? The problem is, if we just straighten up our room and we still have, we still have junk and a mess, maybe it's swept under the, maybe it's swept under the bed. Maybe it's kind of just on the desk, but we, we, we've straightened. The problem is, is that our rooms are still dirty. And if we still have dirty rooms, it will put a bad taste in the mouth of those who don't believe. That's why Brennan Manning's quote just always rings in my mind. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. Check your heart. I need to check my heart. But it keeps going because Ananias, he, he's there. He lays the money. Could you imagine you're Ananias, though? You feel really good about yourself. I mean, you're, you're strutting. You're like, man, I'm, I'm going to the church. Man, I'm about to, I'm about to drop a big check. They're going to be happy. I'm happy. I'm doing a good deed. Like, I mean, I can imagine this big grin on Ananias' face. Feel really good about himself. But then verse 3, verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? So again, you're Ananias, you're strutting, you lay, you lay the money at Peter's feet, and you're like, woo, this is good. And then Ananias like, or Peter's like, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? 
And you would think to yourself, is this a joke? But no, it's no joke. That you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to again, I want you to think about Ananias. I want you to put yourself in Ananias' shoes. As Peter says that, that strong sentence back to you, I, I know how I would be thinking, right? I'm going to start planning my case of defense. Like, you know, Peter, good night, bro. You're going a little bit overboard. Satan filled my heart, lied to the Holy Spirit. Come on, man, take a chill pill. Let's calm it down a notch. It really wasn't that bad, all right? It was, it was my land, my money. Really wasn't that big of a deal. It was harmless. I mean, it really wasn't my intention for Satan to fill my heart, for me to lie to the Holy Spirit, which comes to heart check number five. Listen to me, church. Here it is. Do I see my small sins as insignificant to God? Do I see my small sins as insignificant to God? See, what was the sin? Well, you could, you could say it in multiple ways. Greed, selfishness, pride. He lied. Guess what? They're all common. It's not like he murdered anybody. It's not like he committed adultery on Sapphira. No, he, he just, I'm a little greedy. He kept back for himself. It's just common, right? Small. But we need to start seeing as the church of the living God that God sees sin as sin. It doesn't matter how small. It doesn't matter how large. It doesn't matter whether or not they are sins of omission or commission. God hates sin. Now, and he's serious about it. How do we know that he's serious about it? Well, come on. First, he sent Jesus, his one and only son, to die for the sin of the world. God is serious about sin. Second, he is so serious about sin that, that he doesn't even give Ananias a chance to repent. He doesn't even give Ananias a chance to plead his case. He takes Ananias out. And see what God is doing here with Ananias is his, he is establishing up front during the infancy of the church that he hates sin. Now, some would say, well, didn't God go overboard? Well, if you look at Scripture, Old Testament to New, and New being with Ananias, actually God has done this frequently. Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, authorized, unauthorized fire, boom, dead. <laughs> Achan, when Israel was in the conquest of the promised land, he took a little of the spoils of war, hid them in his tent. Achan and his family, boom, dead. Saul, first king of Israel, just, just one, just one sin. He sacrificed as opposed to waiting on Samuel. Boom, done. Not, no longer going to be the king after his death. See, it seems that God sets the precedent early on in his movements that he's in charge, we are not. You need to do things my way, not your way. See, over, <laughs> over 38 years, over the 38 years that I've been alive, I've been kicked out of a few things. One, I've been kicked out of my seventh grade class for playing pencil break. It's pencil break for crying out loud, but I got kicked out of science class. 
I've been injected from, I, I, I hate to admit this, but I've, I've been injected from a few church basketball games for arguing with my Sunday school teacher. So I guess the, they frown upon that. I've also, this was years ago, I was asked to leave Best Buy in New York City because I was, uh, I was witnessing to one of the employees. I guess they frowned upon you witnessing to the employees. See, in all three cases, I broke rules. I wasn't the authority in my science class. I wasn't the authority there playing basketball. I wasn't in charge there at Best Buy. And see, when, when the person in charge sees that you break or you are breaking the rules, they have every right to do what they want to do. And so with God, it's his house, it's his rules. You break them, there's consequences. But third, let me just play it out though. What if God just allowed things to slide? Not to be controversial, because I, I really, I mean, this is not meant to be controversial, but for the last few months, I have read and I've watched the news where cities throughout the U.S. have rioting and looting and violence. And there are cases where it's like, where are the police? And here's the thing we know, is that when you start breaking rules, when you start breaking laws, and there's no punishment, there's no consequence, then you embolden the rule breaker. You embolden the lawbreaker. And see, play it out to its logical conclusion. If God would let things slide, then over time you would just have a people that look just like every other people. And see, as the church of the living God, we're different. Small things left unchecked grow into large things. Just a few weeks ago, the New York Times ran the following article. A gender reveal celebration is blamed for a wildfire, and it isn't the first time. And that one little spark from that gender reveal party consumed 20,000 acres and took the life of a firefighter. Listen, small matters, and small sins matter to a great God. Question, what small sin are you hiding? See, Ananias forgot to check his heart, but praise God, because God is merciful, which ironically is what Ananias' name means. He's given us an opportunity to check our heart this morning. The last heart check actually comes with Sapphira. She can't find her husband, so she goes to the, the church and Peter asks her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Is this, is this the price that you and Ananias sold the land for? And guess what her answer was? Yeah, that's the price. And that's when Peter's like, how could you conspire to test the Lord? Heart check number six, and I'm done. Do you have a hard heart that prohibits a change of mind? Do you have a hard heart that prohibits a change of mind? You see, it's so interesting that Sapphira, she actually has an opportunity to repent, but her heart is so hard that she can't change her mind. Do you know what change of mind, another word for change of mind is? Repentance. Repentance. She couldn't repent. 
because her heart was hard. And you know what happened? God takes Sapphira and he takes Ananias out of the early church. Does God take people out today? I'm not going to put, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to take yes off the table. But let me tell you what he does do. He takes the lampstand out, meaning he takes churches out. Do you know that there's going to be over 4,000 churches that close this year? And that doesn't even, you know, account for the pandemic. I've always taught churches over the years that the reason why churches close, at some point they don't deal with sin, even the small, minuscule sins that can plague churches. So this morning, let us check our heart so we don't corrupt this church. Let us check our heart so that we'll consecrate his house. Will you pray with me? Father, may we check our heart. Because it's out of our heart that our actions and our attitudes flow. It's the activities of of what it means to be a child of God. That's where they originate in the heart. So may we be a church this morning that checks our heart. Spirit, speak. Convict. Church, we're, we're about to have an extended time of just reflection, of confession, of repentance. And I know it might be a little uncomfortable this morning. I I know, I mean, listen, it's not one of those fuzzy feeling, you know, messages. I, I get it. But it's one of the most important messages of the Christian life, of repentance, of making sure that our heart is clean before God. Why? So that he can use us for his glory, so that he can live through us for his renown. So where in the crevices of your heart are you hiding? Are you concealing? Are you pretending? Confess those as we sing.